You are listening to Talking Home Renovations with a House Maven. Is it time to renovate your house, but you're worried that you don't really know what you're doing? This is an educational and entertaining podcast that will ease your fears. Or maybe you just love hearing about home renovations like I do. I am your host, Catherine McPhail. I am an architect. I practice in Eastern Massachusetts. On the show, I interview other architects, vendors, contractors, and homeowners to gather tips and stories about home renovations. You can learn about materials, systems, sustainable practices, what to expect, what to avoid, and how to make the most of the money that you'll spend on your renovation. Today, we will be talking about how to find, buy, and restore your first historic home with Hugh Seiler. His innovative historic home renovations have been profiled in numerous local and national publications, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Hugh likes to say he's made just about every mistake in the book so that you don't have to. Well, here's my conversation with Hugh. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming, Hugh. I can't wait to hear about, I've read a lot about Ted's Garage, and I'd love to hear about how you got where you are right now. I see you're wearing okay. a Ted's Garage shirt. <laughs> you have the merch, it seems like. I do. Yep. There's a little bit of a marketing background in there. <laughs> um, Ted's Garage is one of the projects. It was actually the most recent project we completed. All of my work is on historic homes. And so Ted's Garage was basically a first-of-its-kind project in the town where I do my work, which is called Old Town Orange, which is about five miles from Disneyland. Hmm. And so basically what I was attempting to do and ultimately did do was take a 16 by 16 foot 1920s carriage house slash garage and turn it into a fully functional tiny cottage. Um, sounds fairly easy to do until you try and do it, A, in a historic district, and B, in California. Mm-hmm. But uh, we finished that up in May. It came out really cool, and I think I had 40 people the first day that wanted to rent it. Wow. So do you rent it out as an Airbnb or as a long-term rental? It's a long-term rental. Um, in this particular district of homes, Airbnbs aren't really so welcomed. Um, mm. So this is a long-term rental. Got a great tenant. She loves it. She loves the history. And uh, it's just a cool, cool little place. That's great. So how can someone else do what you do? Well, um, I'm hoping people can do it a lot sooner than, um, than when I got into it. I bought my first historic home. I was nearly 50 years of age. Um, and I had no idea that I would latch on to historic homes or they latched on to me. But basically what happened is, is there was a uh, multi-unit property built in the 1920s for little cottages um, that had been on the market for about 16 months. And so they went off the market. Realtor called me up and said, hey, these places are really terrible, but I think there's something you can do with them. And I said, well, where <laughs> are they? I'll take a look. Who could pass look. that up? But who could pass that up? That sounds pretty inviting. <laughs> so I went to look at him, and uh, he was 100% right. Um, the owner had them for about 35 years. They had been on the market for such a long time. Every four months, they went down $100,000 in price. So four months later, 100000 Four months later, another 100000 They go mm. off the market. My realtor calls me up and says, Hugh, take a look at these places. They're terrible, but I know you can do something. <laughs> Went by, agreed, put in an offer. The guy snapped it up. So now I'm sitting here going, well, that's great. Now I have four historic tiny cottages that are, that are in horrible condition. Now what do I do? So before we closed, I brought out my, my plumber, my electrician, my carpenter, and one or two other tradespeople. And we did a walkthrough 
And most of the consensus was, what the heck are you doing? This is crazy. Um, yeah, we can do it, but we're going to be out here a while. So ultimately, those four units over the course of about a year, a little over a year, we converted them into just absolutely incredible tiny houses. They've went on to win some of the preservation, um, the top preservation awards in the city. And I have like a group of great tenants that absolutely love living there. That is where the fifth unit, Ted's Garage, was added this year. Okay. And then also you said that you are you do the contracting yourself because you had a bad experience with a contractor. I've had a few so. bad experiences with contractors. And ultimately, um, what I found is, is that if you have a vision, it's hard to download that vision onto somebody else and expect them to implement your vision while you're working your 40 to 50 hour week. True. So what has happened is, is that after a couple of bad experiences, um, I just shut down a job site and said, you know what, I'm gonna read every book I can on how to build homes. Um, meanwhile, the job site just sat dormant. And then once I read about three books, um, started calling in some other folks to help me and just regrouped as a owner builder and just took off from there. So. Worst thing in my life was actually um, trying to convince myself that I was an owner-builder. Best thing in my life was basically getting, making a really difficult decision and getting rid of somebody that was not working out for me. And for the past 20 years, I've been an owner-builder. Hmm. So you were actually doing all of the work yourself, like framing and carpentry, and or were you contracting it out? No, I'm, I'm literally a, a, I guess you'd call it a professional finger pointer. So basically, <laughs> I, have a, I have a team of guys, um, great crew that specializes in, in uh, historic uh, home restorations. And I'm the person who basically finds the projects, uh, figures out a way to pay for the projects, and then as a team, we collectively restore and rebuild historic homes. Okay, so how do you find them? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. One of the probably one of the most important things you can do is actually network with real estate professionals because the real estate professionals are the key to bringing you the deals. So as many you know times as you want to drive around the city looking for real estate signs, that's probably not where you're going to get the best deal. Even in this market, there's not too many deals that are out there. But the most important thing is to basically latch on to the heartbeat of the marketplace. The person mm. or people who have the, the heartbeat are the real estate professionals. They know when the homes are going to be hitting the market. They know when the homes are, people are thinking about moving. Um, so that's really where you want to carve out and spend some time learning who those top agents are, creating a relationship, explaining to them that, you know, hey, I'm looking to get into this market. I want to buy this. Um, if something comes up, you know, please keep me in mind and, and you know, cast that net wide. Hmm. So talk to more than one. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. and I, I, I think there's kind of a delicate balance because every re realtor wants you to think that, you know, you're their sole client and, and vice versa. But in reality, it's they have multiple buyers and, you know, as long as you're honest and, and fair with people and say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm looking to buy a home here. I'd like to, you know, obviously use you. If you find a three bedroom, two bath that meets these following criteria, you know, I would love to be added to your email blast list. Um, and, uh, and most of them are really receptive to doing that. And of course they want to sell homes. So that's right. typically, typically it's, um, the, the other point that I would make is, is that Always ask your real estate professional, how good are you at creating sales? 
And they're gonna look at you and say, well, what do you mean by that? And by that, I mean, are they willing to write cold call letters and say, I have a buyer who you know, totally matches the profile of your property. If I could convince them to buy your property, are you willing to sell it? Mm-hmm. So it's not just finding the real estate professional that sticks a sign in the ground and um, you know, basically markets the property that way and through the MLS. It's like you want somebody that's going to work on your behalf that's going to carve out a sale and find you the sale. Yeah, I got a letter like that a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought it was fake, but so, I called them anyway. <laughs> and then they called me back, and then I called them back, and then that was it. So I guess they didn't really want to buy my house after all. I would say there's a pretty high proportion, especially in a market where there's few listings. I would say at least 50% of them are, are agents trolling for listings. But mm-hmm. I think it comes back to the authenticity, the general you know, feeling good about working with somebody, expressing to them that you're serious, your financing is in place, and you're ready to pull the trigger is a lot different than going to an agent and saying, hey, if you just put me on your on your blast list and let's hope that you find something and I hope that I qualify, you know, I guess the takeaway is remove the hope, be serious, find somebody who's equally as serious to represent you and make sure that they can carve out and feel comfortable in creating sales. Right. Okay. So then is there a way that you fund these that is non-traditional or is it the the usual... Um, it seems like everything I do is non-traditional. Um, as an example, um, about five years ago, there was a property or properties that came on the market. In fact, it was a block of homes that came on the market in the area where I restore the homes. Um, the listing said, must buy the whole block, must have cash. The, the deal has to be put together with cash. I had $3,200 in the bank. And I mm. said, wow, this is a, honestly, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. How can we make this work? So I called up my realtor and I said, hey, this is like a fantastic opportunity. Can we work together and can you put together an offer? Absolutely, let's make it happen. So me and 23 other folks put in offers. It was narrowed down to me and one other person. And keep in mind, the caveat was had to have cash. I have mm-hmm. $3,200 in the bank. Probably my realtor, not what it cost. No, I was about $1.6 million short. Okay. Um, and so basically my realtor comes back and says, hey, the folks who have the listing, the real estate team that has the listing, likes some of your other projects, what you've done in town. If all things come in equal or hopefully greater for us, they will do the deal with you. So they're coming back to us and one other party with a best and final offer situation. Hmm. So he says, how bad do you want it? I said, I want it bad. So we basically cranked up the offer, um, way over asking price, ended up getting it. Next day, my realtor calls me and says, hey, we got the deal. Um, I need $40,000 to put into escrow for a security deposit. Hmm. And I said, Bob, I don't have that money. And (laughs) there were a few expletives that were were screamed at me. And he said, well, how do you think you're going to do this? And I said, it's not how I'm going to do this. I said, you're going to have to find us a hard money lender which essentially is a loan shark. And we went the difficult route, got the hard money lenders in place, um, qualified, ultimately closed the deal in 30 days, which was the other requirement. And uh, the rest is history. So at that point, I had a block of homes that were dilapidated and were in need of quite a bit of love and restoration. And that's when we started that project. That took three and a half years to complete. And it just turned out to be a fantastic, beautiful, uh, historic 
row of houses out here in Southern California. Well, and the loan sharks are no longer in your life, I assume. <laughs> the loan sharks had to be in my life for one year. Mm -hmm. um, that was a condition of the loan, and I paid, I think the rate was, the going rate at the time was about 4%, and I was paying about 10%. Um, until I could actually get the property stabilized, get it to where it was starting to make money. Then I could actually go to a, more of a traditional lending situation um, and extinguish the, the hard money lenders, get conventional financing in place, and breathe a very serious uh, uh, breath of relief after that. Mm. Yeah, I was involved once with some sketchy financing. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I was very happy not to. I was very happy to get rid of that. But uh, so, do you have advice for restoring old houses versus, um, you know, renovating newer houses? Is it different in your? It's different opinion? in a in a lot of in a, on a lot of fronts in terms of the historic house. Um, I would say it starts with the personnel that you need to restore a historic home. There are a lot of people who who can restore homes, there are a few people that can restore historic homes. Okay. So the hardest thing is building that team. Um, so after you've identified your list of things that are going to need to be done um, and restored, replaced, rebuilt, the most important thing you can do is build a team um, or hire individuals who have significant experience doing what you want them to do. So that means handymen, probably not going to be the first person that you call to work on a historic home. That right. means people that haven't worked in the trades doing things like, you know, replacing knob and tube wiring. Oftentimes, even a conventional modern electrician will come out and they'll look at this and say, what is this? Mm. So it's just, there are a number of things. A drywall person who does great work in a traditional house out here looks at a historic house in the area where I work and says, what, is the, what are these little slats? What is this? What is this? This is plaster? This isn't drywall. So part of it is, is finding the right person for the right job at the right time at the right price. I mean, that's not easy, right? It's so not, how, do you, it, how do you find the people? Well, a lot of the work has kind of been done for at least people out here in our area. So as an example, um, the Preservation Association, which I'm a part of, uh, they have a list of tradespeople, which, I mean, it's an incredibly um, good list to have at your fingertips. I think it should be promoted more, actually. But once a trade person gets on that list, obviously they've been vetted. They've worked in the historic area. That's the good news. The bad news mm. is that if they're on that list... They're really probably, busy because they're, they're good. Busy, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, how long? I mean, speaking of being busy, how long would you expect that to take? If you're contracting your own project and you don't have a lot of repeat work for these people, wouldn't it end up being a little harder to get people to come work on your project? Yes and no. It depends on a lot of it depends on your attitude. A lot of it depends on the project. A lot of it depends on the trade person's willingness to work. Um, on a particular project. So ultimately, it's a matter of like wh whether it's uh, working on a new home, whether it's working on a renovation, or whether it's working on a historic home, you have to mesh. You have to mesh with the tradesperson. You have to mesh with the architect. You have to mesh with, you know, you, you have to, there has to be a degree of confidence that A, he's going to do or she's going to do what they're going to do, and you're going to likewise do what you're going to do as well. Mm -hmm. um, and most people can kind of either sense or feel if it's not a good situation, and if it feels like it's not a good situation, pull the plug. 
Mm, yeah. So when you say attitude, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I know what you mean by that, I think. But how would you how would you define having a good attitude? Well, when it comes to like as an example, if I'm hiring a tradesperson, um, you know, I want to see some enthusiasm. I want to see somebody who is interested truly in doing your project. I don't like it's just a vibe. And part of it is, is you're going to you're going to know it sooner rather than later. So if you get somebody out there who's giving you a bid and it feels like it's pulling teeth either to get them out to give you the bid, mm -hmm. if you don't feel like there's a connection with them as it relates to when they're walking the property, looking at things, um, probably not a good fit. If you get you know, communication that takes a long time to receive after you've been promised that it will, you'll have it in the morning. And one of the first things they do is they don't have it to you in the morning, but two weeks later, they call you back and say, hey, I forgot, I need to get that to you. Probably not a good fit. So I, I would listen to your gut very much so early on and don't let mm -hmm. things like talk. Don't talk yourself out of it because ultimately, if you think it's going to be an issue tomorrow, cut it today. Yeah. No, I agree about the whole listening to your gut thing, even if it's inconvenient. Sometimes it's the only person who's even shown up, but if it's not going to work, you'll find somebody else. And um, I once had, I, I had this little mansard roof Victorian house, uh, my husband and I did, mm -hmm. and we wanted to move the bathroom, but I didn't want to take up the wide plank floors that were up there. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to access the plumbing from the first floor through the plaster, which is easy to replace. Mm -hmm. So I was telling the plumber what I thought we could do there, and he just... He said, lady, you'd be a nightmare to work with. So I took that to mean <laughs> that he didn't really want to work with me. So we, he didn't get the job. And so that was, that's a not so subtle cue, but yeah, that, <laughs> I that... picked up on it. Yeah, that was a hit. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and part of it is, is, is when somebody comes out to your, to your house, I mean, that's your kingdom. Mm. And there, you have to look at the cues, you know, did they ask you to take off their shoes or did they just come barging in with dirty work boots? Okay, the little cues like that where you go, that's not a little cue, because if he's coming to my house on day one and we haven't even started a relationship, um, not a good sign. So yeah. it's just, it's things like that. Don't, don't, don't discount the little things. That's very true. So what is your secret to making these, uh, to restoring these? I think that you said you don't, do you do 100% restoration or do you try to approximate things or what's your, what's your method? So the method to the madness is basically to take what I typically say is a, is a tired, rundown, um, usually home that has a bit of a funk to it, and to turn that into something that's cool, that will get people excited, A, not only with renting and living in one of these homes, but to me the ultimate success is that once somebody who lives in these homes, who's never lived in a historic home, actually goes out and buys a historic home. To me, mm -hmm. that's the, the holy grail. So how do you do that? Well, much easier said than done. So, you know, essentially every home has its own unique peculiarities. The project has its own weird things going on with it. So we try to do things as historically accurate as possible. Um, but include, of course, the modern creature comforts of today. So as an example, if it has lath and plaster and it hasn't already been you know, taken out, then we go back with lath and plaster. All of the light fixtures are period-correct light fixtures from the teens and 20s. Hmm. Um, as it relates to bathtubs, um, I not only try to find unrestored, unmolested clawfoot tubs, 
but in the little cottages that I do, I try to find apartment-sized clawfoot tubs, which are literally four foot. They're the first thing that when somebody wanted to renovate in the 30s, 40s, or 50s, they were the first thing that got chucked into the dumpster. So hmm. spend a lot of time on eBay. Spend a lot of time with pickers um, who you know call me all the time saying, hey, I found five bathtubs. I found five toilets. Are you interested? Most of the time, they're pretty destroyed. Um, mm. But, you know, every now and then, you get a good phone call, and, and that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. Wow. So how do you find you? So that's where you find the lighting fixtures as well? Are they actually, are they reproductions or authentic? There's no reproduction light fixture in any house that I've restored. I just, wow. I really want the authentic. Um, I, I just, there's just something about an old fixture that has been, um, cast, whether it's cast iron, whether it's brass, whether it's aluminum, you cannot even begin to replicate the coolness of an old light fixture from the teens, the 20s or 30s. Um, and oddly enough, most of them don't cost or cost on par with a decent light fixture of today. So mm. if you're looking at it saying, I'm going to spend X number of dollars on a new fixture, I look at it as, well, why wouldn't you buy something original to put in a historic home? Yeah. And so that's 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 one of the things in my opinion that really sets a true restoration, historic restoration apart from um especially as it relates to rental properties, which is what I have. Um it's it separates kind of a top tier from a from a mid pack restoration, the lighting. Mm. Yeah. And so besides eBay, where else could you find that kind of thing? Like architectural salvage or Architectural salvage is a good place, although you're competing when you go to buy, you're competing with designers who typically have deep pockets because they walk in with a, with a checkbook and say, my buyer or my client wants three of these light fixtures. Do you have them? And if you do, who cares about the price? So the architectural salvage is a good starting point, but I also like to literally scour Craigslist, eBay. I have lighting people on speed dial. Um, every cool light fixture comes from somewhere other than California. We throw away our history. <laughs> we don't keep it. And so anything cool comes from back east where you are. Mm. Um, certainly the Midwest, if you're looking for industrial lighting, Wisconsin is the place. Um, so once again, creating relationships with these people. If you're on Instagram, if you're on Facebook, there's no shortage of places where you can find these folks. So that's good to know. Yeah, it's California is, um, I went to graduate school out there and it's not really known for its, uh, you know, it's, it's adherence to history. I mean, it, it felt like things were getting torn down and rebuilt all the time out there, at least where I was. No, nope, 100% accurate. There, there is, uh, there is a area of Southern California. It happens to be the area where I do my work. Um, there are a few pockets. Uh, Old Town Orange happens to be the largest district of historic homes west of the Mississippi. So there really? is a there is a federally, you hmm. know, state, county, city protected area of fourteen hundred homes that are nestled within a one mile radius and that is Old Town Orange. And it is absolutely Americana as only Norman Rockwell could paint. Well, I'm sorry I missed it when I was out there. If I, <laughs> if I ever get back, I'll have to go see it. Absolutely. Well, so when you say the house that has a funk to it, now do you mean like that's kind of funky in a cool way or that kind of smells bad so nobody else wants it? Or what do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Could be any Either. or all of the above. Could be no, both. It could be both. Usually I, I call it grandma's funk. 
and yeah. grandma's grandma's funk can mean anything from decor. So you walk in and it's you know the house that's super dark, filled with doilies and dust. Mm -hmm. um, or then there on the flip side there is the funk of you know the house is literally falling off the foundation. It's funky. It's weird. Um, I bought a property where literally the tenant had to put their bed in the opposite direction of where they wanted to put it because the house had fallen off the foundation. And when they had their bed the other way, the blood ran to their head and they kept getting a headache. Oh, okay. So though, that's, yeah. that's the funkiness that I tend to like gravitate to or it gravitates toward me and finds me. <laughs> you know, I also gravitate toward that. And um, when I'm looking for a new house, I the... the kind of more dilapidated the better for me i feel like it's waiting for me to fix it 100 so no 100 um you know the worse home the better the opportunity i truly believe it if you've got the stomach and the team to pull it off it's really fun to do if you can actually get past the the hoops and hurdles and actually get it done it's really cool to get it uh, to get it to where it's you know literally somebody moves in and you hand them the key and it's this beautiful home yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. It's my favorite thing to bring a house back to life like that. So mm -hmm. those are my favorite projects for sure. Because then I, I feel like it's it, the house is given another hundred years to be, to be itself. You know, and I feel like the houses seem happier. Absolutely, personally. It, it's I I tell my crew, if it's good for the tenant and it's good for the neighbors and it's good for the neighborhood ultimately we'll all get rewarded because if we if we focus on the tenant and we focus on the house and we focus on improving the neighborhood we're all going to succeed because they're going to keep getting jobs because people see these beautiful projects that get done tenants are going to tell their friends hey if another vacancy comes up i'll let you know um and then ultimately it's kind of a it's just a win-win for everybody. So that's what I try to focus on as opposed to looking at a spreadsheet and saying, oh, this is, uh, if we do this, this, and this, we'll make this amount of money. It's just, I don't work that way. Yeah. Well, that's not that much, that's not as much fun as actually yeah. <laughs> just making people happy and making a neighborhood better. I Absolutely. Think. So what tips do you have or advice do you have for, for people who might be tackling their first historic home? You're going to need to get a good home inspector. And a home inspector that is good for what I would say like a modern era house may or may not be as solid and, and as good as somebody who specializes or at least has done a number of historic homes as it relates to inspections. So I would say before you even tackle the, the first project, make sure the person who has done your home inspection is just spot on, experienced, and what that will provide you is a punch list for which you can then embark on your journey to, re to restore and renovate that house. So, of course, the first things are going to be the infrastructure issues. Is, is the foundation solid? First things first. Is the electrical in good shape? Is the knob and tube outdated and, and in bad shape, chewed by rats? Um, or has it been updated with a newer electrical panel? Is the plumbing in good shape? Is the cast iron leaking? Is, is it now, you know, uh, galvanized? It's been bastardized over the past 30 years. So when you embark on it, you're going to have to basically look at that punch list and say, okay, what's the highest priority? Infrastructure, number one not the granite countertops, not the stainless steel, get the infrastructure in line, um, figure out what your budget's gonna, you know, how far your budget's gonna take you and then just tackle it, you know, one by one. Mm. Yeah, the, I, I like to call all those things the, uh, the root canals of architecture, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> you have to do them, but nobody really wants to spend money on them. Painful, but necessary. Painful and necessary, yeah. <laughs> I would say the most important thing, I would go back to trust your judgment. And when, and, and I'm not trying to like flog a, a, make a bad situation into like something that's worse, but I just, I'll never forget like how difficult it was to fire somebody who you thought had your best interests at heart. Mm. But it was literally the toughest decision that turned into absolutely the best decision. But between the tough decision and the best decision was a lot of head shaking and hand wringing and, man, can I pull this off? Once you get past that point of being able to gain that confidence to know, you know, yeah, you could do this. You could pull this off. It's not going to be easy, but you can do it. Then everything kind of falls into place. So I still go back to don't give up on your goal. Don't give up on your dream. Don't change. Don't, don't assume somebody's going to buy into your dream and your vision just because you're writing them a check. If they mm. don't buy into it from the day one, they're done. Okay. What do you have going on now or what's your next project? Looking at a few projects right now, um, I have one that's currently in the pipeline with the city. It would be a small cottage build. It would be obviously a brand new build from the ground up, made to look 120 years old. So the, the challenge is definitely there. It would be located here in the historic district. So to take a brand new house and to drop it into a place called Old Town just in itself is a little bit of a challenge. Gets a little people, gets people a little more than a little nervous. Um, but of course, it'll be like absolutely blend into the neighborhood and you will not be able to tell the difference when it gets done. So that's the challenge. So I think some preservationists, or at least when I, you know, 30 years ago or whenever I was taking preservation classes, there was one school of thought that said, that anything new should look new so people don't get confused about what's new and what's old. Do you guys ever talk about that? Yeah, there's definitely... Uh, I, I like to think that if, if, especially if it's a new build and it's literally nestled right next door on each side to something old, I want to see old. I want to see old looking that pays homage and respect to the old. Um, I understand why some people would want to, to defer to something a little bit more modern just to, to call attention to the fact that it isn't an original. But then you also have the fact that it sticks out. So right. is the goal for it to blend into the neighborhood or is it to call attention to the fact that it's not new, but it has been, you know, newly built? So I'm kind of old school. I wanted to look old, but I wanted to have all of the creature comforts. I wanted to... You know, it needs to be insulated properly and, and earthquake mm -hmm. retrofitted and all of that good stuff. But in terms yeah. of outward appearance, curb appeal, you pull up, you should not be able to tell the difference between 1905 and 2022. What do you do with the windows? I'm just kind of curious because I often struggle over that with people who have old houses around here and they want to, uh, I, I try to get people to restore the windows rather than throw them away. But so, a lot of people don't like that. Um, I'm in your camp and out here you cannot change the windows. So in the no. historic district where I am, they are sacred. So ultimately what I tell people is to restore your windows and your doors will probably take you as long as it does to restore the whole outside of your house. So to mm. painstakingly take every one of your windows out, casement windows, double hung, whatever the case may be, 
first off, just get them out of 100 years of painted wood frames and everything else. That's a hallelujah moment just doing that. Then to get them working is step number two. And then to completely strip, prime, paint, re-glaze, um, um, sometimes after replace glass, etc. And when you finally get those windows to work, ah, it's, a, it's an amazing feeling, but it's painful along the way. But it's yeah. totally, it's necessary to get that look and feel and authenticity. Yeah. My house is just from the 20s, but 1920s, but um, which I guess maybe in California, that's kind of actually old. So I don't know what I'm saying, but we have these, our original windows, which were uh, old growth wood. And so they're just, I think they're better quality windows than what I could buy new at this point. So anyway, we restored them all. No doubt they're better quality, longer lasting. Um, the only issue is, is is they need to be tuned up and they need some love um, because over the years, oftentimes people haven't uh, afforded it uh, the, the love that it's needed. But once, I mean, it's, it's like an old car. Everything works mechanically so great once mm. it's given the opportunity to. But when it doesn't work, it's, it's a miserable situation. That's true. We have, we have to have storm windows out here also, which a lot of people don't like the look of those. Yep. The fact that anybody is interested in buying um, a historic home as their first home, they totally need to be commended. I, I wish I would have started many years before. So I think the fact that somebody is actually embarking on, on buying a historic home, they're, they're already cool in my book. Um, <laughs> as it relates to like doing the project, doing the work, I would just say just stick to your vision Talk to a lot of people, go to historic home uh, open houses, go to historic home tours, um, talk to as many people, meet as many craftsmen. And probably one of the biggest tips that I've learned um, along the way is go to supply houses, go to um, wood material yards, go to lumber yards, go to old school plumbing places, meet those people, find out what they have sitting on the shelves, find out who the top carpenter is for doing uh, finish work, find out who the best craftsman is to do the book, uh, built-in bookcase that you want, find the old school plumber who's literally, you know, been around and, and knows how to do these things and you will be so surprised at how excited they get to come out and work on your project that you've actually found them. So it's a little bit of a challenge, but once you build the little Rolodex and the contact list, you're in, you're going to be fired up and in good shape. Yeah, it's totally worth the effort to take the time to build the right team. 100%. Yeah. So how can people find you, you? Well, probably the best thing to do is uh, find, uh, find me or find my projects on Instagram or Facebook by searching historic home row, one word, and that's in Old Town Orange. As I mentioned, that's where we pretty much ply our craft and that's where we work. And uh, I'm pretty receptive and open and, and uh, connecting with people is, is a good thing and always willing to share advice and help people out. I think I've made just about every mistake along the way. So if I can stop people from spending money, wasting their time, and hiring people that aren't uh, in the best uh, interests of their project, I'm totally willing to help. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. I hope you subscribe to this podcast. If you don't, please head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you have time to write a review, that would be so helpful. Please contact me for any reason at 
the house maven at talkinghomerenovations.com. I love to hear from people. You can also join my Facebook group, which is Talking Home Renovations Together. And I'm on there with a bunch of people who have also been on the show, have been guests on the show, and other architects and homeowners and contractors. And so we can just talk about whatever issues people might have right there in the Facebook group. If you're on Clubhouse, come join me 10 a.m. Eastern, Saturday mornings. There is so much information on my website, which is TalkingHomeRenovations.com. Head over there for transcripts, episode enhancements, other information. You want to be a guest? That's where you'll find that information in the application. This podcast is a member of Gable Media, which is the largest AEC network on the planet. Check out the other content on the network at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. This podcast is a production of my architecture firm, Demios Architects, where we believe architects are for everyone. Until next time, take care.